Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode eight, six short stories about magic. Written by John McNamara and Sarah Gamble. Directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Whitfield. And she is a newcomer to the Magicians show as far as directing. IMDb gave this an 8.4. And the synopsis is Julia and Fenn investigate a dangerous group of magicians as Elliot and Margot's reign is challenged. Which is surprising because we saw Elliot and Margot for about two seconds. But it's very much so challenged. Absolutely. The overall premise of this was obviously telling six different stories about our magicians. We had in order Penny, Poppy, Alice, Elliot, Fenn, and Harriet. Then Penny again, but same story. Right, we return to him to close out the episode. Well, I'm very surprised to hear that IMDb's grading was so low, but I have a feeling it might be because of the title of the episode. If there was one gripe, and that's the wrong word, it doesn't bother me at all, but just trying to find out what other people are feeling and thinking. Putting it together in these short quote-unquote stories, it wasn't really short stories. It was clips of an episode arranged in ways that were very interesting, that would give you puzzle pieces that eventually towards the end of the episode, you're able to piece together. Yeah, I actually love the way that it was split up. I did not feel disjointed. It felt like we had a sequence we were moving through of telling these different stories. While we did highlight individual characters when we were in their story, there was some intersecting and overlapping. And we did have that through line of Penny's story kind of narrating how they all fit together, those puzzle pieces you're talking about. I love the fact that Penny was the narrator of sorts or reader of the story. It added a whole other dimension to it that you don't really see too often. Very cool. I think they could have capitalized it on even more by having him emotely narrate it, kind of like Q has been doing. But I don't mean the whole thing, just kind of opening each story. I was thinking the same thing about how you could have pushed it a little more. Don't get me wrong. This was one of the best episodes The Magicians has ever done. But I think it's probably a universal feeling that Harriet's story stood out above all else. Not just because it was interesting and there was information we've been waiting to get for a long time, but the intensity, the impactfulness of having it be MOS. And Jade kind of shared this with us a little bit during the interview I wasn't familiar with the jargon, which is standard filmmaking talk, an abbreviation that's used to indicate a segment has no synchronous audio track. So it stands for motor-only sync or motor-only shot. We're going to get into a little bit more about filming that and the experience that we have as viewers, but I just thought, what a unique way to tell her story to highlight that. And were there other ways that we could separate the stories and tell them from a different perspective, depending on which character we're highlighting to make them more impactful? I agree so much. But to touch upon Harriet's storyline just a little bit more, I love the fact that they didn't do it just to do it because it was different. It actually taught us a lot more. The library is very mysterious to us. You and I have been asking questions about the library forever. And it's given us a little more information that we will divulge later. It also gave us a chance to see Marley Matlin in a more elongated scene, which was 
fantastic. And if you guys listen to the interview with Jade, you know how much I really enjoy her on screen in anything she does. And going further still, you saw that Harriet and her mother, who we now know is her mother, Zelda, speak about the great blank spot numerous times in this episode. And in IndieWire, they asked Sarah Gamble about this great blank spot. So I just want to read off a little bit of it. I thought it was very interesting. Harriet and her mother both referenced the great blank spot, the portion of everyone's biographical book in the library that for some reason is full of blank pages. It's disconcerting, to say the least. And according to Gamble, it's related to Cassandra, the old lady stuck in a room writing the books. And Gamble said, the season is the great blank spot. The whole story of Cassandra is the answer to the question, why the book stopped in that moment. They stopped because the library had magically mechanized her gift or curse. And without it, they were left with one crazy lady in a room with really long hair, writing one book at a time. Part of the reason that Cassandra looks like Alice and is played by Olivia Taylor Dudley is because it is exactly the kind of what the fuck that we just really love when we're watching fantasy. So we did it because it made our head spin and we liked the feeling and we wanted to pass it along to the audience. Yeah, well, that certainly brought up some more questions for us, right? And I love when stories do this. They give us answers, which just unfold more questions <laughs> for what's going to happen moving forward. I think there were a couple of bombs dropped on us here. The big one being the old lady in the room looks exactly like Alice. Is she in fact Alice? If so, what's going on there? She calls herself Cassandra, which is a story from ancient Greek mythology. I could remember bits of it, but while the episode was going on, I couldn't quite fill in the details, so I went back to look. She was a daughter of King Priam and Queen Hecuba of Troy. She was cursed to speak prophecies that no one believed, so she became a figure of epic tragedy. There's a couple of versions of her story. The common one says how, in an effort to seduce her, Apollo gave her the gift of prophecy because he wanted to sleep with her. Well, this happens often in Greek mythology, right? When she refused him, he then spat in her mouth to inflict the curse that nobody would believe her prophecies. In another version, she falls asleep in a temple where snakes whisper in her ears so she can hear the future. Either way, her gift became an endless source of pain and frustration. She was seen as a liar and a madwoman by her family and the Trojan people. In some versions, she was locked up in a pyramid building in the citadel on her father's orders. She was accompanied there by a wardess who cared for her under orders to inform the king of everything his daughter said. She was driven truly insane by this in the versions where she was incarcerated. Now, I thought this was interesting because this seems to be the version we're seeing here with Cassandra slash Alice being locked up in a room in the library, forced to relate all of these stories, these prophecies that are coming to her and write them down for the library. And it is kind of driving her mad. Also in this version, Sylvia seems to be her wardess, the one she's kind of comfortable with, can calm her down a little bit, but is maybe there to keep an eye on her and report back now that we know that Sylvia is a bit of a true blue for the order. So even when I figured this out, I wasn't as quick to the conclusion that you, Jason, came to very early on, which, well, of course this is Alice. You know, when she first came on screen, that's the thing you jump to because it looks like Alice. But then they go on and on with this story. They have you second guessing that. And it took me a while to put the pieces together that she wanted to make a deal or the library wanted to force her into a deal in order for her to finish her quest for the grand unified theory of magic, whatever the hell that is. Well, I do want to say up top, of course, I'm not 100% positive, but I have a gut feeling and I'm just going to go with it. I may be completely wrong. 
especially after reading what Sarah Gamble said. She might be just throwing us off the scent, saying, yeah, we made it Alice's character because we wanted to give that what the fuck moment. But No, that sounds like a non-answer because yeah. she doesn't want to give her anything away. We know that the magicians love to weave information in and out and then have you forget about it and then bring it back. In this case, throughout this episode, Alice kind of felt like a non-factor until certain segments and then they made you forget her again. And I think that was on purpose. Having her go into the library by herself and we start to learn that she's been trying to retrace what she remembers when she was an all-powerful Niffin and she has a blank spot and I, excuse me for saying blank spot, mm-hmm. not the great <laughs> blank spot, she just doesn't remember it all. Yeah. And we see that Zelda, the main librarian, is about ready to make a deal until she finds out news that her daughter's there and she, gets, she goes off. And then we don't see anything further. But they very well might have made that deal. We see Quentin making a very conspicuous statement when he sees Alice there. So you're working for the library now? And she doesn't respond. Well, I don't think they made the deal yet. He's just wondering how the hell you got here. The only reason why. Because she did those, that scene wasn't broken up for us. We saw that in real time. I think she will come back to make this deal and what it could possibly be. We know it entails the seven keys and we know that we've seen deals when concerned with the library where Penny is forever indebted to the library. Well, you sign on for life. We've seen that with Sylvia as well. And no, we don't see the deal being made in the moment, but now we see this potential Alice of the future many, many years later, still there appearing like a servant working for them locked up in this room. I don't think she likes the job she's been given, but this is all the knowledge of the world, right? Maybe what you ask for, but not necessarily what you want when you get it. Careful what you ask for. um, That she is forced to now write down everybody's story and receive all of that unifying knowledge that belongs solely to the library. So that, that's just it. I believe it is Alice, but a different version of Alice that perhaps Penny will be able to change now that we know what's going on, if time isn't linear. And I introduced time mainly because, one, we saw that with the Chatwins, time was not linear in any stretch of the manner. And as soon as Penny, in the beginning of this episode, lands, and we'll go deeper into this, we see books surrounding him and different segments of books or sections. And one is time travel. So we know it's not impossible, and we know the library has the knowledge to do so. So I think in this storyline, unless Penny and the crew save her, she ends up becoming forever a slave to the library with the knowledge that she always wanted. But does that mess with things? Is that necessary? So this kind of comes back to my big questions about the library. What purpose do they serve? Are they good or are they bad? We see a lot of very vague things that look awfully suspicious. These contracts that you have to sign on for. The potential future Alice that's locked up in a room being driven crazy. The mysterious room of antiques where they are storing a suitcase full of this fairy dust we know is only begotten by very sinister ways. Are they simply containing all of these things, all of the knowledge and power of the universe within their walls to help protect people because they think that's what they need? I think that's what the main conversations boil down to, the essential differences of opinion between Harriet and her mother, the librarian. The librarian was trying to tell her, I know this 
grand, exciting world looks great to you. You want to explore Fillory. You want to go off. I get that inclination. I wanted to do that when I was young too, but I saw too much too early and I realized the dangers that can be, the bad that can be had. And later on from sharing information with other people that maybe they shouldn't have. And that's the big deal about the library not wanting to open up books to the public or really let them know what's going on there. Now, we have seen people that get their hands on knowledge and information. Let's think about Martin Chatwin, where it gets taken to the really bad extreme and can affect the world for the negative. So I can kind of see where she's coming from with that. If you open it up to everybody, you have to open it up to everybody. And then there's a real danger. And then you have people like Harriet on the other extreme who just say, well, let's give it to everybody. You know, if that's what causes the great blank spot because we put our faith in people that we maybe should not really trust, that's one of the bad things that comes along with it. But that's what we have to do, freedom of information. So is it that or are they really bad? Do they want all the power of the universe? Do they want to control magic everywhere in all its forms? Well, I think it's one of those tropes that we get in movies, TV shows, and actually real life. Do they think it's bad? If it is bad, if they are bad, do they think they're bad? Uh, Maze Runner, for example. And I won't go any further mm. with Maze Runner just in case you haven't seen it. But They think they're doing the right thing. Exactly. They've seen the worst of the worst. They're scared. I mean, you can go with, to parents and children where kids aren't allowed to do anything and they're not allowed to grow because their parents are so scared for them that they don't let them do anything. They're kind of bad guys for their kid. Mm. Overprotective because they think they're going to save them. So I believe that the library is not this entity that is all bad and it wants full control. It wants all the knowledge and only give the people they trust the knowledge that um, they want, but always have this special antiquities room where they have the power, if they need to, to shut it all off and take control again. I think it's more of Zelda has learned not to trust. She has the power of knowledge and she's scared to let it loose. Now, is she the be all end all for the order of the library? I believe so. So she's the main power, the main force behind all of this. What is she? Well, that's a good question. We have a lot of theories that we could think of. Is she a demigod? Or even some kind of full-blown god where we hear the story about what happened to Cassandra. It was that a god was angry with her and turned her gift into a curse. Yep. Was that, in fact, the library that did that to her? Or is this version of Alice eventually going to continue seeking knowledge, run into a god somewhere, and go afoul of that? And the library just takes her in afterwards and makes use of the gift. Right. Yeah, I like that. I like how you went full circle there. That could explain the whole she made a deal with a god that did not pan out correctly. Never pans out well, we should know by now. So we could say for sure she's a god, she never ages, but we know that time is different in the library. And we're reminded this episode as well. So I'm leaning towards she's a god, even demigod. I think that's still powerful enough. I mean, look at the way she stands. It's uh, Watch the episode again and just watch Zelda how she stands. It's very godlike, powerful-like, even even if not, and this is probably on purpose, even if not intimidating um, per se. I don't think she wants to portray that as the head librarian or head of all knowledge. She's just very confident in her own power, whatever well, yeah. that is. But we've said in the past how knowledge is power, just like money is power here 
and knowledge too, but you know what I mean? Yeah, and they own that, but I also think she has a certain degree of magical power that she is very confident in. When she talks to Harriet later, she says, I don't want to hurt you, but there's this look in her eye, I could. Mm -hmm. I could if you drove me to that because I have these powers. Yeah, almost as if Persephone was talking to Julia. So I would lean towards that, but then there's the other answers that she's not. She's just a good magician who lives in the library, so never ages. Or is it something else? Um, The library kind of reminds me a little bit of a religious order. They have these acolytes, these followers that they bring in. They're specifically searching out the best of the best, right? Travelers like Penny that they can utilize. Do they have a whole group, different members of people with different magical skills that are incredibly honed? And now over time of working with them, you have tons of knowledge, you have access to all these other things. So do they just kind of become a a very powerful institution in their own right? So right there, we haven't even gotten to plot and we have (laughs) divulged so many questions and possible answers. I'm feeling pretty confident in the way we're thinking. When I feel this way, oftentimes we'll see episodes later that we were right. Well, because as you said, The Magicians is a very clever show. The writers, the producers, they think about these things a lot and they plant maybe even very tiny seeds early on that you don't know the full answers, but you get a feeling. You start leaning one way or another. Is this the road that they're taking us down? And the library has perhaps been the most mysterious out of all of those things. This is really the first episode. I mean, we got Sylvia in the poison room, but that was kind of an extension seeing it from a remove. This is right to the heart of it with the head librarian. And we didn't even emphasize the full effect of, holy shit, Harriet is her daughter. I mean, this character that we thought was kind of periphery, we loved her because of Marley Matlin, but living on the outskirts of our group, and we knew we'd have to get more about that eventually. Now we really get a fleshed out background and nothing is a mistake. Nobody is a periphery character in this story. As you speak, I have so many things going through my head. This is one of those episodes where I had a very difficult time organizing my notes for this podcast. (laughs) Well, luckily they did loosely break it up into six stories for us so we can follow along with some kind of structure. But before we get into that, we had some exciting news that we wanted to talk about both for CKC as well as the Magicians as a show. So, of course, because you guys love Magicians so much, you have to. If you're listening to us, you probably already know that they've been renewed for season four, which is amazing. Halfway through the season, already renewed. Didn't this happen last year with the renewal for season three as well? I think it took a little longer, but pretty early as well. Sci-fi is very confident in the show. Well, it makes sense because Magicians is Sci-Fi's top performing scripted series among 18 to 49 year olds and has been since the very beginning. That's a big demographic. Yeah. So this is exciting news, and that means that next year we will be reviewing The Magicians again. We can confidently say that. As we decide the schedules on what shows we're going to review based on what you guys want, and we know that you've been loving The Magicians so far, they have proven to us that they need coverage. There's so much going on here. There's so much to talk about. It's incredibly exciting. Absolutely. If the Clatchers want it, the Clatchers get it. And speaking of Clatchers... I want to give a big thank you to Mara for moving up in her tier to the movie pledge. So I hope you enjoy and Patreon all of our movie reviews. And speaking of Patreon, you guys know we interviewed Jay Taylor last weekend, and that was an amazing interview. We had so much fun. I was very nervous in the beginning, but I think we opened up and got loose towards the middle. 
there's so much more to that episode that we will provide for our Patreon members in this month's bonus. So if you've been thinking about joining the CKC Patreon page, now is the time to do it. Yeah, we'll have some extended cuts, some bloopers from the interview. And Jason, now that we've had both Penny and Katie, who is next from the Magician's cast? I think we'll leave it to the Clatchers to answer that question. Maybe we should put up a poll and see who they would most like to have next on CKC for an interview. So again, just to reiterate, we have plenty more scenes from the Jay Taylor interview that we will be putting into Patreon. And if you don't know what Patreon is, that is our pledge-based podcast that we do every month, giving you exclusive content to bonus episodes where we talk about current events, movies that we're watching, other shows that we're watching, more personal things. We have a blast. We have outtakes from when we're up here for too many hours and we start getting too goofy. And we also have movie reviews where we go to the movies based on what you guys vote for. We watch the movie. I eat too much popcorn. We come back. We make extensive notes and we give you a really in-depth review for that particular movie. Plus so much more. It's an entire community that we're trying to create with discussions, the feeling that you're part of a group that can come together for your virtual water cooler, geek out over the things that we really enjoy. And it's also an exciting time because we have some raffles, some giveaways going on over there, thanks to a sponsor of ours. Every month, we select two winners, one from the new pool of Patreon members to join for that month, and the other one for all the existing members on Patreon. And whoever the winners are, they get a free item of Coffee Clatch Crew merchandise. They can go on to our store at coffeeclatchcrew.com, pick out whatever they like, and we send it to them. We had our first raffle last month, and it was very fun. We did a video. It was really exciting, and we look forward to doing it further. Also, if you don't win, you get 10% off anything in the gear store. And also, you know that you're helping us out. The little bit of money, $4, $5 a month goes to Christina and myself to pay for the broadband for the free podcasts and to keep bringing you the high caliber podcast hopefully that you enjoy but for everybody else that has not joined Patreon yet and why haven't you go ahead and do it you also have the opportunity for a giveaway don't forget for a limited time only until the magician season three ends if we receive a hundred reviews on iTunes on the magician's channel everybody that's in that pool of 100 people will get put into a raffle for an item of CKC merchandise. We are at 50 reviews right now, and we are about midway through the season, so it's going to be tight. Start getting those reviews in now. So remember, if you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, join our Patreon page and get more content from us while knowing you're lending us a hand. All right, let's get to the magic. Well, as we said, we bookend this episode with Penny, so we start out with him traveling down the chute to the library. And that's where we get these amazing sections of books that they have going on there. Phosphoromancy, time travel, magical creatures, ancient magic, antiquities. This is a library you want to be in. I am totally nerding out and wanting to be there right now. But Penny quickly exits the library and goes outside to a field where they have temp housing. Apparently without magic, nothing is working right and they're backed up in processing. Because he didn't file a request or hand deliver it to the hotel... He has to bribe one of the officers there to find out where Benedict is. Now, how do you do that in the underworld? You give them information about what happened in the last season of Game of Thrones, even if you have no idea what you're talking about. I love that. That was so funny. And even though he was making it up, that's what you look like and sound like when you're trying to describe Game of Thrones to someone who doesn't know. Well, where did he get the dragons from? I know, right? That's the question. (laughs) Where did he get them? 
It's also funny because we have a Game of Thrones podcast, probably one of our most downloaded podcasts. So if you know Game of Thrones and you haven't listened to those, check those out. Well, the end result is it works. They tell him where to find Benedict and Penny goes to see him. While Benedict is initially excited, he realizes quickly Penny is just there for the key, not him. Man, I continually feel awful for this character. Now he's dead and in the underworld and he still has that going on. So I can't exactly blame him. We know that he's going to lie to Penny here. But this whole scene was very funny. It could have been a sad, sad scene, but the way Arjun Gupta acted it out, it was still funny in a way. He's back to like a little bit of asshole Penny. (laughs) Benedict tells him the library took the key. It's the only part of the underworld functioning and it's well protected, so it will be hard to get. Penny, of course, ducks him when he offers to help and runs into Sylvia along the way. This is a character I did not think we were going to see again. We know that she died in the poison room last season. It appears like she's going to help him here. I have to tell you, though, I was a little skeptical of that from the get-go because I never really liked Sylvia's character. And I don't mean the actress. I mean the way she's portraying it. I always kind of got the feeling she's not really there to help Penny. Well, she was a little prickly. We'll say that. Mm Mm-hmm. She takes him to Cassandra, who is in the process of writing Penny's book, and she tells Penny... Here's the deal. Cassandra has a gift. Of course. She kind of got involved with this guy... Bud? And it didn't end well, and he was pissed, so he gave her magical sight. She can see the future. This should sound familiar if you've read any ancient myths. The one that no one believed, and it drove her batshit crazy. Quiet, squirrels. I guess some librarians found her and got her to start writing everything down. Wait, she's the person that writes the books of the people in the library? Well, yes and no. She can only write one at a time, so at some point the librarians wrote a spell to, like, industrialize her thing, and that's how all books were written. That stopped when magic did, and now it's just her, one book at a time. And when Sylvia read what she was writing about Penny, this is how she figured out he was going to wind up here. Well, yeah, she read that she went and got Penny. So (laughs) she just followed the book. That's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, chicken, what happened first, the chicken or the egg? Mm -hmm. The whole timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Well, they warned, who was it, Elliot, not to read the story? Mm -hmm. When they were in the library, they wanted to take out their own book. That's right. Dangerous shit can happen. But this entire episode, Penny is going to be practically begging Cassandra to give him that information so that he knows how to get to the key. Yeah, this is one of those things you see often when there is a omniscient, us normal folk want us to want them to just give us the answer that we want. Mm-hmm. And it just it's not like they can look through a glossary and go, Oh, you're on you're you're looking for page sixteen. Hold on. Okay, the answer is no, it's coming to them as if real time, but just ahead of time. Yeah, but what's funny about that, she does actually give him the exact right page. And he disregards it in the beginning because he thinks it's just a sex scene about Quentin and Poppy yeah. and doesn't want to look any further. It's not until he comes back to that later and she forces it on him when he's really getting angry with her that he goes, oh, it's been here all along. Hmm. I see what you did there. This was a great start to the episode. I mean, we haven't been getting enough of Penny. And now we're getting him able to talk to everyone, being himself more and setting up the whole episode for us. And the way they did it, I thought it was very unique and really did adhere to the title of the episode, short stories, meaning he's reading these short portions of what Alice or Cassandra is giving him. Well, and he is still a bystander because we wondered how would he fit into this now that he's on the astral plane? Is it just going to be him watching, not 
being able to do anything. And he kind of was again this episode. But the way he could interact with characters and influence things and kind of narrate for us made him a lot more relevant. So over to story number two, we get Poppy. After her and Quentin have sex together, he is still worried about the plan. And in his musings on that, he actually gives us a great little nugget we've been talking about for a long time. He says, a quest is supposed to change a quester. I know what I have to be to win this quest, a hero. I also know what I am, which is not that. And it's an interesting thing that they're doing here, making us question what is this supposed to be about? Is it about figuring out who you really are? Because Poppy follows that up with rejecting the premise, saying the brave thing is to be who you are and accept the consequences. But it seems that's what she's doing and it's not working out so well for everybody else. On the way out, Poppy runs into Alice and she tells her the plan to use Victoria. We get a definitive, finally, on what travelers are. How are you even going to get there? We have a traveler, Victoria. But how's she going to travel you? That part's a spell. Yeah, so we're not doing that. Travelers are magical creatures. Technically hybrids. Fine, whatever. All I know is that we can use her DNA. She's going to build a mirror bridge. I love that because we had that question from episode one this season when Penny gave us that little comment to that guy he was collecting the book from. So this is half human, half magical creature? I guess so. Mm-hmm. That makes me wonder what are the possibilities, what are the powers they have as half a creature? Well, I don't think they can touch without magic because what we've seen with the traveler later on this episode he still needs to use that fairy cocaine for magic but do they need to tut in order to do magic because penny can travel and read people's minds without that we've always known that was kind of a separate ability exactly so the magic that they don't need to tut for they're still able to do and that's i guess what is their essential magic from being a creature right the tutting almost feels like an avenue that humans discovered in order to access magic that maybe initially they were never really supposed to have. It's like the end around that the hedge witches figured out. Very similar, yes. And that's something I want to touch upon later when we discuss further what Alice is trying to do. Mm -hmm. Well, back to Poppy, we learn that her plan is to create a mirror bridge using Victoria. Alice has a problem with this, though. She says they're usually built between Hedgewitch safe houses that are 100 miles apart max, and that's because the distance changes the metamath, so the spell would need to be absolutely perfect in order for it to work. This is one of those instances where I love their hearkening back to book material, where there was a lot of stuff revolving around creating portals between places. They didn't call it a mirror bridge, but essentially the magic was the same. It was very, very difficult. If you had a magician that wasn't totally trained or didn't know how to do the math right, you could still get the portal. But they said when you walked through, the edges were kind of fading away. You had to be really careful not to step anywhere directly off the path or there would be consequences. They didn't kind of go as in detail to being stuck and what that would mean. So that kind of remains a mystery. Yeah, and it's a big mystery knowing the way this episode ends. Where's Harriet and Victoria? Are they permanently just stuck in a void? Is there any way to access them? I hope not. She tells us once that bridge is closed, that's it. You're screwed. So no wonder Alice didn't want to take part in this initially. But it kind of gets me frustrated again with Alice because later they say she's the only one with the knowledge to do this. She knows our crew. She knows they're going to go ahead and do it anyway. Whereas if she was involved... Maybe it would be a little better. We couldn't have foreseen these circumstances, of course. 
And it's not going to matter because Poppy being Poppy is just going to steal her notes and her knowledge on mirror bridges later. Victoria makes that same argument that she doesn't want to risk lives and she needs them to prove that the bridge will be stable or she won't do it. And in order to kind of convince everybody of this, Katie finally tells the group what Harriet is after, what we've been wondering about this whole time. And that's the fact the librarians have been searching for something called the Alexandria cell, which the librarians from ancient Egypt made. And it's basically a huge magical battery. Knowing what we know now, I think it was very clever to use the battery concept because we've seen it in action with (laughs) Mayakovsky. So we could picture it. On a grander scale. Yeah, Yeah, that kind of made me wonder the entire episode, whatever happened to the Mayakovsky having more batteries storyline. We sort of fell off with that and started exploring other avenues, such as the fairy dust. But there is one that is morally, ethically okay out Mm -hmm. there that we haven't tapped into again. And while doing this, this is when Poppy steals Alice's Niffin notes. And bringing them to the group, Victoria agrees to help. She creates sigils on the mirrors using her own blood that power the spell. And she has to stay and feed them in order to keep the bridge open. Yet another example of how gritty and gruesome magic can be. Yeah, magic can be for humans. The more we're watching these episodes, the more I'm realizing in order for magicians, human magicians, to utilize magic, it feels very rudimentary, very sacrificing. And very unnatural. I always wondered why they went to such great lengths in the book to describe this. They touch on it a little bit in the show, but not a lot. The fact that in order to learn how to tut, part of what they were doing at Break Bills, they had to do extensive hand exercises. Quentin would talk about from point of view in his chapters, being in classes and having to work out his hands to make them stronger. They had to put their fingers in very unnatural positions and they would start cramping up. There were certain spells that it was a lot more complicated and really difficult to do. Again, it's not natural. It wasn't like something that just comes to you the way we see with, say, magical creatures. Yeah. And so in between this scene with Victoria and the next one, we get another quick shot of the dying world. We talked about it for many episodes, then kind of stopped talking about it because I felt like a broken record, but we never forgot about it. This means something. Think it was episode one? We saw the dying world going into a black hole, but this one was the mirrored image of it. It's the same scene, just mirrored. And yet again, we got it right before a Neitherland scene. So when we saw it earlier on in the episode, then we went into the library. We saw it very askew and almost tilted, and thus we assumed... This is the world we're talking about being affected. Now, here we go to the underworld branch, and it seems they're fine, but I assume that's totally separate and different. Uh, So I still think that remains open. Here, Poppy and Quentin go down the hall to the chute from the bookworm to look for where Penny said he'd hide the key in a book. But it's not there. At that point, Poppy very quickly tries to convince Quentin to go back. You know, this is a wash. Forget it. Let's get out of here. Save ourselves. Of course, she is the first person to say that. On the way back, they pass Alice in the hall, which confuses Quentin. But then they go to a shot inside of the mirror where only Poppy walks through, immediately making us suspicious, right? And in fact, she then leaves Victoria very quickly, who insists on staying to help the others because if she left, the bridge would close and they would be stuck. And this is Victoria, the one who left them earlier last season. Just goes to show you, Poppy is someone we really don't know yet. And I think 
my gut feeling when we first met her is still reigning true. She's very self-preserving. She even admits it to Q. That's no longer a question. It's how self-serving is she and is it going to help the crew? I'm hoping that towards the end of this season, she will be met with a decision to make and she makes the right decision for once and helps the crew out. Well, yeah, because initially she told us she just wanted the key so she could get out of Fillory. That's no longer an object. So what is she really up to now? Well, she told Q she wanted magic back. Which seems like a very generalized excuse that anybody Mm. would use so she could get away with it. But every time there is danger in this episode, she is the first person to piece it. Oh, you want to stay in here and help the others? That's your prerogative. See you later. So it's interesting, though. It it is the short story about Poppy, but we don't really learn that much more about Poppy in these scenes. This finishes with Penny reading the pages and seeing what's happening with the crew. Where they transition to story number three with Alice, I like this is the first time where they kind of skip back a beat in the story to show us the way it was happening from Alice's point of view with that same scene. So where Katie goes with Harriet to Alice for help, you see Alice saying the mirror bridge is not going to work. And Harriet makes her argument, telling Alice the library buries information. Only the people they choose get access to it, and she wants the knowledge to be free. Not only that, but if Alice helps, they will offer her a piece of what they find there, the magic from the battery. Surprisingly, Alice says that if she says yes, it would mean risking lives for power maybe no one should have. Ooh, that really threw me off the scent with Alice here. I was wondering, did she learn her lesson? We saw her give the magic back to Julia last episode, so has she kind of changed her tune that it can be dangerous, what we were saying before? She's reflecting on those experiences as a Niffin and realizing maybe nobody should have that level of power all to themselves. But what she's going to lead up to later, uh, you know. Says otherwise. Maybe says otherwise. I think definitely. I mean, I suppose it really depends on what her theory is about. But first, we see Fen come tumbling out through the clock. I really love this interaction here. She gets drunk and starts telling Alice her story. When Alice says she can sympathize because she's lost something too, all knowledge and magic, Fen says it's not the same because she can't get her daughter back. This is something that Alice can pursue and possibly fix. And I wonder if Alice was starting to change her tune and what Fen said to her lit a fire under her ass afresh, you know, like I don't have to necessarily be resigned to losing everything I love. Maybe there is a way to do this. Because it's then that she goes in search of the chute to the library that Penny told her about. And she finds the mailman who takes her there. Uh, What's the deal with this mailman? (laughs) What do you mean? Is he just like a... um, like a transporter for the library, essentially. You know, the way Penny used to go out and get books, he goes out and gets other things. Yeah, same thing. Uh, not necessarily just two mailboxes. I think he's a traveler. He does tasks similar to Penny. I think they all do the same kind of ta- kinds of tasks. It's kind of like the feelers for the library. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem like such a pleasant guy. Well... <laughs> I guess all travelers are a little bit... uh, Uh, Yeah, prickly. They tell us that, right? Uh, But it works. He takes her down. She tells the librarian she wants a library card, or really just information, that she started this quest out as a Niffin, but she can't finish it now. She can't remember all the pieces to the puzzle of her grand unified theory of magic. The librarian tells her her experiences as a Niffin have been sufficiently documented already in her book. And that's when Alice realizes they don't want her to finish finish. it. 
But she says Alice can do something for them in exchange related to the quest. This is what I wanted to talk about. The grand unified theory of magic. Mm. So we've been kind of broaching this this whole episode of this podcast, talking about how with humans, it feels unnatural. We have to do a lot to figure out how to utilize magic. Think what Alice was doing as a Niffin was figuring out the entirety of magic, kind of like the meaning of life for us. And I believe if she finds, if she completes this theory, it will be a way for humans to embrace magic the natural way which would deem the library moot, meaning some of that power that they have, some of that information that they hold dearly in order to make sure if anything goes wrong, they still have the power to fix it, will be obsolete. We no longer will have to study so hard and have to do those hand exercises and need to find the books that are hidden to get the knowledge. If we have the grand unified theory, we will have magic in its entirety just like creatures, per se. So where magic comes from, how it originates, why certain types of beings have certain types of magic and others don't, that kind of thing, like the knowledge behind magic type of thing? I think that's some of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. But more that we can't even imagine. Yeah, because it seems like as a Niffin, she was on a whole other plane. She had the answers to questions that people have been asking forever, and it just mm -hmm. came so easily to her. The moment she went back to being human, it all started to fall away. Like she said, the puzzle pieces slipped away from her, and she couldn't make sense of it anymore. It seems like the library can. They stopped her before that sentence was even finished. No, we documented it. We got it. It's all good. But what they want her to do is help with this quest. Now, help in what way? Help to stop them from finding it? Help them to find it, but make sure they get it before mm. we can use it? Because now they send Sylvia out on Penny's trail later. She sees him with the key, allows him to send the key up the chute, but not go with it. If they wanted to keep this for themselves, they would never let him send that key back to Quentin and the others in the first place. No. They need the crew to finish it. Yes to get to the ultimate answer. So do they not know what that is? Or do you need people to finish the quest in order to get to it? You can't just get it, whatever it is. Well, we see they don't have magic either. They're depending on the fairy dust. Right. So they couldn't just send their library people out to get these keys no. and finish the quest. The magicians have to do it. And we also know it has to be your quest. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we're simplifying it. I think there's more to it, obviously. But that's one of the grand theories we have. And what we're saying is not just about Alice getting all the information she wants. Yes, that's part of it. But there's a bigger theme to that. Right. I mean, you know, we've been talking about that forever. Where does it all come from? Even the wellspring that runs through Fillory feels like an offshoot, a spring that comes from somewhere that powers up magic in this world. But we know there's magic in other worlds, too. So where does it all start? You know, and how do people get to that? And of course, back with Penny, he realizes that Q left without the key. And he's wondering, what is he going to do now? Story number four is Elliot, and it's very brief. Just this quick scene, but as you said, important, where he makes a statement to a crowded throne room at Whitespire, demanding the trial and peasant uprising be dismissed. Well, this was, I think, a very beautiful scene. One, Elliot speaking about how Fillory has saved him, and now he feels like he needs to save Fillory. Well, and he hates it, and all the people right now, but it's still his quest, as you were saying. He's going to see it through. 
I thought it was telling that Elliot was the one speaking and not Margot. You would think Margot would be the one, but I think she's so steaming. She's the one that will uh, show the teeth, while Elliot will be the one that will speak before the teeth is needed. Well, and he really does care. His heart is truly in this now. Not that Margot's isn't, but over the course of the season, it's become a task and kind of been miserable for her. And by the way, they're talking to some kind of marsupial. <laughs> and Penny's wondering, how is this relevant? So I think for sure we are going back to this in a major way next episode and we'll get more information. So moving on, story number five is Fen. Irene McAllister comes to the physical cottage to talk to Julia. Julia tells her the transfer worked. She has magic back. And Irene says she came to collect on the favor that's owed. We knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. Not quite what we thought initially. She wants her help performing a spell. And she shows her, by pulling up her shirt, the terrible effects that have happened to her from taking this fairy dust. It looks like her skin is being eaten away by acid. Yeah, the side effect from the powder. Well, we've seen last episode that magic does not fit everyone. If it doesn't fit you, it will eat you up from the inside. And that's exactly what's happening here, similar to what was happening to Alice from Julia's magic. But in this case, it's stolen magic taken from, you know, I'm remiss to say this, but maybe a fairy's magic is the most purest magic and humans cannot take that in. It's almost like... When you think about taking drugs, not that they're good for you, but we know that you can only take up to a certain percent pure. You know, if it's 100% pure of that drug, you will die. You will overdose immediately because you just can't handle that. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what we're seeing going on here. This is almost like, you know, 90% pure magic. They did tell us that it comes from one of the rarest magical creatures in the world. And we do know now that that is fairies. This kind of explains that conversation that we were having when Julia first tried out that magic. And you said, is this dark? We can see the black smoke coming out of there. And I was saying, I don't know if it's exactly dark. It's, it's more like a weird experience. The way she's feeling it is not quite right. And yeah, this totally makes sense. Not quite right because you're not supposed to be using it. It's not made for you. It's not necessarily bad magic for the people it comes from. And we also get the answer that Irene says to Julia, well, don't worry. You use it once. You'll be fine. You get the feeling she's been using it an awful lot. We knew from, I think it was key number two, the truth key, that when we saw Julia find the key and we saw those two fairies, we knew right away. The magic in that house is coming from those fairies. Yeah. What I didn't know is if they really were servants or were they posing for the fairy queen on some mission of hers, they really are servants. Mm -hmm. Slaves is more like the proper word for what's going on here. Because later, Julia has this conversation with Fen. Fen tells her that the fairies hide behind powerful people and manipulate them into doing terrible things. But Julia thinks... These fairies that are at Irene's are different. They were the ones being manipulated. They were doing chores. They're different from the ones that Fen knows they looked like servants. Fen, of course, because of her experiences, is very adamant and advises Julia against getting involved at all. But Julia thinks she could help. She makes a key statement here that when she uses her magic for good things... It seems like when I use it to do good things, to help people, it it grows. I didn't ask for it and I can't get rid of it. If I want it to be anything but a burden, I have to use it. And so she needs Fen to talk to Irene's fairy because she can't see them. 
I think this was so telling for many reasons, one of which is that during this conversation, Fen is saying, yeah, but if you knew what the fairies were like, this isn't that bad. And Julia says, under no circumstance is slavery okay. okay. Yeah. And then I think it's so impactful that later on, and I'm jumping ahead because I think it really slams this home, the fact that Fen is the most affected by the fairies and most likely to hate them, it's only fitting that she's the one to see how the humans of Earth are treating the fairies. She's the one that realizes it firsthand. Maybe this explains the feelings that we have been having about the fairy queen all along. And, and I've been saying, you know, I, I'm just not sure that she's 100% bad. Is there a mm-hmm. reason behind what she's doing with Margot and Elliot in Fillory? It seems like there's a purpose behind that. And if she is, in fact, aware of what's been happening to her people for a long time, and this is primarily about self-preservation, maybe there aren't that many fairies left. We did discuss that possibility. It might not be as vast of a number as she made it out to be. Is that one of the reasons she needs to grow an army because her people are dying? Because humans have been grinding up their bones to make their own magic. Is that what she means about humans needing to be different and better? Not just that they're bad rulers of fillery, but they misuse magic horribly. And maybe she just has been trying to make things better for her people and her world. And I think what was scary to me, I mean, obviously there's nothing worse than what we see later where we find Skye out in that shed with her leg cut off. But on top of that, there's an intense level of psychological control and manipulation that Irene has been using on them in order to keep them captive. She's been feeding them this story that they're only servants there because she's helping them. She's keeping them safe from the bad magicians (laughs) uh, by hiding them. And they didn't even know there were any other fairies in existence. Yeah, there's more to that story we don't know. Basically, one thing we do know is that fairies can't see cross worlds because the fairy queen, when the eggs were on Earth had no idea where the eggs were. And it's vice versa. These two fairies that Irene has thinks they're one of the last fairies around. That's horrible abuse, what she's doing to them, how she's keeping them enslaved. And they really do think they're being kept safe, quote unquote. Is this removal of a limb the first time she's gone this far? I don't know. I mean, it looks like they're fairly intact. Does their magic have the ability to grow things back or does she just oh, keep I wonder. getting new slaves when she needs them? I mean, how has she been having them believe that they're being kept safe if they're having limbs chopped off, you know? No, that's a good question. I wonder if the limbs eventually grow back and they think they need to do this in order for their master to have the power to keep the Protect bad magicians away. So they can survive and it's not that bad because it'll come back and... I mean, how how else do you make them believe that? I know they're very beaten down, but that's kind of a stretch. Yeah. If if you never get that back. I wonder. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that because they only took part of a leg. Yeah. Left the rest. Where else did all those vials come from that mm-hmm. she's been using? Well, and that kind of led me to my next question on that. Who were those vials for? So we see when she first comes to Julia, Julia performs this spell that heals her. She told her it required incredibly big magic. So she needed help with it. It seemed like she was going to try to clean slate it. But then when they go to the shed and find Sky, there's all of these new vials being made. Is this just like a drug? Has she become so addicted to it that the moment she gets healed, she's right back to using it? Well, I would say yes and no. Yes in the fact that she feels like she needs it. But no in the fact that she's addicted to the chemical. 
I think it's you've had magic for so long and you've come to depend on it so long that you can't bear to be without it. Right, but not just can't bear to be without it the way our humans are right now. Oh, I'm in such a deep depression. What is life? What is my identity without it? But more like what it was like for Alice when she was fiending for it so bad she was willing to become a vampire. I need that back. I need that back. Is this more like that because it's a higher level of magic and the more you get up in that scale, the harder Mm -hmm. it is to take it away. Or are they storing up so much of it to give to someone else? I mean, where did the library get this whole suitcase full of vials? Are they being manufactured for them? Well, yeah, maybe. But considering where in the library that was, which was in... Antiquities? Meaning that it's been there for a while, right? It's ancient antiquities, so... But the mailman just came walking in with that suitcase. No, the suitcase was there. He walked in and opened the suitcase. Oh, he wasn't carrying that in? No. Was he adding to it? No, I think he was going to take one. Okay. Refill his magic. Because that changes the whole story, whether he was getting some and putting it in there or... It's a good question. I think in the case of Irene, she has a lot of money. She has a lot of power. Her family has had a lot of money and power, and there's a reason. And without magic, I don't think she'll be able to sustain that money and power. Well, because remember, she said that her father was storing up a backup source of magic for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wonder if he had a suitcase like that. Did the library come confiscate it? You know, that's a good question. And if it was just those two fairies, maybe you're right about the limbs growing back. I, I love that thought, the limbs growing back. Well, if they are one of the rarest creatures with incredibly powerful magic, um, what can't they do? I love the play on fairy dust, because essentially that's fairy dust. Yeah. Love that play. All right, let's go to our sixth and final story, one of our favorites, that of Harriet. This is broken up into time segments. First, 1952, where a young girl returns to the library. The librarian is mad because she was gone a few hours and went through a fountain again. She reminds her that time moves differently outside, and we realize this is Harriet's mother. We talked about how she knew she was going to Fillory, and while she can understand the temptation, it's much safer here, inside this world of books. And so the battle begins. The mother wants her to stay here, work this job, remain safe, but Harriet wants to be in this story, as she says. Fast forward to 1985, now a teenager, Harriet's in another argument with her mother for letting her friends see the library books. Her mother suspends her privileges and thinks it was a mistake to send her to grad school. She doesn't want her to go back to break bills. But Harriet retaliates. What is the point of a library where nobody can read the books? And she leaves. Then 2007. Harriet comes to check out a book. She is much older now. Uh, This was pretty amazing how they were slamming it home. We knew that time moved very differently here from when Penny got sick. And the librarian was telling him not to leave because barely any time Mm -hmm. would pass and his sickness would be okay unless he went to Earth and stayed longer than an hour. So we do realize that part of why she doesn't want her daughter going off could definitely be she's going to stay the same here for a very, very long time, whereas her daughter will age and live a whole life and eventually she would lose her. I mean, I think a lot of this does come from love for her. She's not trying to be a bitch. She wants to keep her safe and to protect her. But unfortunately, a bigger part of it is just these ethical principles that she really seems to believe in, and that is not freedom of information. Weirdly enough, though, she's going to very easily give her this book 
that Harriet requests, principles of conjuring elementals. And we know that's the one we were going to see later on in this timeline, but earlier on in our season where they're getting the book to help Penny. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's very important to state that this is the time when we realize that when Harriet is asking, just open it up a little bit just so her friends can get the knowledge. It's not fair. It's not morally correct to hide it from everyone. When we find out that Zelda is not just being mean, she has a reason in her head and she believes she's correct. What if me giving you guys the information is what starts the great blank spot? Well, and she's right. If you really think about it, she got involved with the magicians. She showed them how to heal themselves. The magicians, based on the knowledge they learned earlier on, took on the beast, which changed the dynamic in Fillory, then wound up killing Ember and Umber, which flipped the entire world upside down and wound up removing magic in the first place. This goes back to, does our humans meddling in this business create huge problems that if they weren't involved, sure, we want everybody to know things and have magic, but does the library kind of foresee consequences that can lead to that they're trying to prevent? Yes, but there's so many arguments with that because the beast was disrupting everything and eventually he would have taken control of even the library. They destroyed the beast. Would he have? Well, what do you think his goal was? Well, I don't know, but if they have the prophecy to know what's coming, Mm. maybe they knew that that would have run its natural course and, you know, things would have kept on keeping on. I don't know. Remember that it's not really the magicians who shut off the power by killing Ember and Umber. It was the gods who were upset. We, We know gods are very emotional. They're more emotional than humans in every mythology out there. They're the ones that sent Mario down there to turn off the power. Absolutely correct. But the wellspring has been running through Fillory for a very, very long time. Humans have been sneaking their way into using magic and coming to Fillory for a very long time. Nothing has called the old gods down and their attention upon them so far as we know until our group kills Ember and Umber. Now they have to take notice. Now they come in like upset parents to scold their children and send the plumber to turn off magic. So if they'd never killed Ember and Umber, would that have happened? Well, I guess what we're trying to say is humans are bad and everyone must kill themselves (laughs) because we... (laughs) No, I just think they they disrupt the balance and Ember and Umber knew that. I mean, that's why they brought them into this world to shake things up, to make things different. The balance might not be good. The status quo might not be good, but humans are turning that on its head every time they're involved. Yeah, but what really gets me is that... If they didn't turn off the magic, everything would be better. Gods often in mythology do this. They'll do something out of spite, out of anger, but not teach them anything. They just kind of let it all go to no, shit dicks. from there. Yeah. If they're trying to teach them a lesson, and I think earlier this season during these podcasts, I've been trying to reach a way to say that they're teaching a lesson, right? I kept trying to find reasons. If they're going to teach the humans a lesson, there's a better way of doing it than this. I don't think they're teaching them anything. They're just they're making it worse. They're lashing out. They're scolding them. So what we're saying here is gods are horrible and all gods. <laughs> In every story. Uh, let's come back to the library for a second. We're finally seeing parts of this in greater detail, which I think is very interesting. Again, I am a nerd. So going back to the novels, 
when the institution was described to us, it was formed by multiple buildings that surrounded the fountains in the Netherlands with windows that were always closed. There was no communication between the librarians and outsiders, and it was built and preserved by master magicians with knowledge beyond other magicians, which we do see is true here as well. But the layout is a little different in the TV series. It's formed by a gigantic underground tunnel, or basically a basement, that has at least two levels, where all knowledge is preserved, magical and non, and where access to the knowledge is limited. Damaging or disrespecting any of the books will get you banished. You can be suspended, even if you're the librarian's own daughter. We see there's different areas, and there's different branches, and I'm sure that probably even extends further from the Netherlands branch and the Underworld branch, many right? Many worlds, many worlds. I would not want a late fee from them. <laughs> this is really sad with this scene here, because... I think when Harriet comes back, she's kind of hoping to repair the relationship with her mother. The mother kind of gets more right back to business about work there. I mean, she is very happy to see Harriet. She goes up and she hugs her. Yeah, even Harriet says, I'm not in a hurry, Mom. And she's like, no, it's my job. It's my job. Let's talk about you working here again, mm -hmm. even though I haven't seen you for however many years. Um she says that challenging times are coming, the great blank spot, and they could use Harriet's help. So like you said, Harriet's even willing to come back there. She wants to fix this so badly. She's willing to come back to work. And even, you know, kind of step down initially, she really wanted this to be open to everyone and access to be free to everyone. But here she's saying, well, maybe just let's start with a couple of people, open the trust circle a tiny bit and see how it goes. And her mother is really not willing to budge at all. And so she leaves again. And then we're back to 2018. When we first met Harriet, season two, one of, first of all, I was so enthralled by her. I remember there were short scenes, but I was like, oh my God, I love these scenes. I don't know why. Let's remember, she was the head of Fuzzbeat, mm -hmm. which is a company that is advocating freedom of information and censoring. That's her whole story. That's her whole life story growing up in this library full of vast information. You know, as a child, she wanted to branch out and learn more, but then realized back at her home is where the answers to all the questions that everyone, including herself, out there in the real world have. But they couldn't get to it. And it, it all just wraps around. I love how the magicians put it all in a bow. This is Harriet's story, and now you understand why she's that way. And they made even the librarian one of the most closed off people thus far more human and relatable through this mother-daughter story that absolutely while in a magical fantasy world still has all the essential problems right of a mother-child relationship yeah as soon as they said mom so again we kind of back up to see things from harriet's point of view this time we go back to that point where the group is going through the mirror bridge and once there they split up Harriet tells Katie if the battery's there, it will be in priceless artifact storage. So they go look through this room full of things that has everything but the battery. This is where the mailman comes in and they hide as he opens the suitcase full of fairy dust vials, does something, and then leaves. They don't know what it is, so Harriet tries a sniff. I love this whole <laughs> part where Katie's like trying to very carefully, safely smell it. It's not cocaine, and she just puts a bump on her hand and sniffs it up. Well, I love right before that, she says it's no cocaine, and Harriet gives her that parental look, and she's like, what, you haven't tried? Yeah. And then right away... <laughs> Katie's like, what the fuck, man? You don't just go sniffing things. 
<laughs> but, you know, she realizes right away, this is magic. That's what's going on. Fire in her hand. And we get that great sound. I want to talk about the sound in a second. Yes, absolutely. So they take the suitcase, but on the way out, they run into her mother. Pandemonium ensues. Harriet orders Katie to run. She realizes the whole battery thing was a lie to just keep magicians running around. There is no master battery. What they have is this vial full of fairy dust. And the librarian won't let her leave with that suitcase. She can't take it. When she tries to flee, this is when the mother tries to stop her using magic. But she takes it. She gets into the mirror. She tells Victoria to run. We almost think they're going to make it. Before they can, and against her mother's protest, the mailman smashes the mirror and it shatters on both ends. Love, love, love how the glass breaking starts the sound again. And Achilles, our podcast mascot, did not love that because he flew around the room and landed on me. Well, he is a great example of everything they were trying to do here and the fact that it worked, right? Because he got very lulled from this whole time of having a long period of quiet. And it was even worse to have that loud sound. And that's exactly the effect that the creators were going for. And if you guys don't know, that's our parrot. They talk about how for most of Harriet's part of the story, the audio is relatively silent. Now, relatively is the right word for this. They wanted to sort of simulate what the experience would be like or approximate it for viewers that have limited hearing. And from the same article we quoted before, Gamble gives us the answer. Our sound design people worked really hard on very subtly using sound so that people with hearing who are watching the episode are given the impression of feeling vibration rather than hearing. We were having these conversations about the sounds that we have created and designated for different magical spells. We've called them whooshes and shimmers and dings. If you couldn't hear it, would you be able to feel it? And what would it feel like? For example, when Harriet casts that baby fireball, what does that feel like against her body if she barely hears anything with her ears? Yeah, they talked about how in these really intense action sequences when things like that were happening, fire was being thrown around or whatnot, there would be some sort of muffled reverberation. They tried to replicate sounds at low registers that would be experienced by many deaf people who don't have 100% hearing loss. So brilliant. They would hear things like that. Or even how you would still feel reverberations throughout your body if you did have complete hearing loss. And and we have surround sound. Listen, we love TV. We love movies. Obviously, we do a podcast about it. So most of our money goes into the TV, the speakers around us, (laughs) the surrounding lights. So we have this nice big surround sound so we could hear and feel the bass as everything vibrated. It was so engulfing. I never paid so much attention to a scene. Yeah, I love, you know, we didn't entirely know what Jade was talking about when she came onto the podcast for our interview. She was explaining this episode and, you know, that it would be MOS and what it was like to act in that scene. And she said, of course, acting with Marley Matlin is always brilliant. She loves working with her. But on this other level, when she was acting out these scenes, she found herself really listening to and relating to somebody else on a different level, not just listening to what they were saying, but reading them through their body language, their facial expressions, being so much more in tune with that. And that she hoped us as viewers would have a little bit of that experience through this episode. And I was. Yeah. With the the sound being turned off and kind of shutting that part out, I felt myself 
more acutely experiencing what I was watching and feeling. And that's only through a television screen. Amazing. And so the effect they were looking for when that is now completely disrupted and you're shocked by this violent shattering of the mirror, it nearly knocked me off of the couch. Yeah, well, it knocked Achilles off the couch. Man, Jade Taylor made us so excited in that interview for this episode, and she was rightly so. Right on point with everything. So how did they do this? How did they make it where there was these muted sounds that made us feel like we were really unable to hear but experiencing what a deaf person would. As they were cutting the episode, in order to give us that kind of sense of what it would be like, their producer set up a microphone against his Avid station, and he wrapped it in a bunch of bubble wrap and cellophane. He recorded all the sounds through this intense level of physical muffling, and then he played it back into the cut. That's amazing. Very amazing. Very inventive. Very intuitive. I love it. Well, and please, when you get the opportunity, if you haven't already, listen to the interview that we did with Jade Taylor, because the way she describes this is just so amazing. It fleshes out this part of the episode, this scene a lot better for you. And it makes me think back to where she was talking about people that are hearing impaired. And she said she doesn't want to call it a disability because it's just a different kind of ability. And I did become more empathetic to that as she was saying she hoped we would while watching it as I felt myself that much more in tune with my other senses. And I was even thinking to myself, I would love to try to hone some of these other senses and have those experiences more to to be able to understand what it's like to have different sorts of abilities. So um, she can say it a lot more eloquently than me. Go check that out. But what an amazing scene and this really culminates with such an emotional moment because we are wondering the level of caring coming from mom the head librarian but it is so clear in the moment that mailman goes to shatter the mirror and the look on her face just shocked horrified don't do that you know that's my child so that leaves us with the question are they stuck there is that permanent I mean, they did make it sound like that when they were talking about the spell earlier on. Um, are, are you just left in this endless void? Is there a way to magic your way back to that bridge? If so, do you need somebody like Alice that has infinite knowledge of... Well, Alice doesn't have infinite knowledge. You know who does or has access to it? Her mother, Harriet's mother. And we saw how she screamed no. We didn't hear how she screamed no. We saw how she screamed no before that garbage can was crashed right into the mirror. I think the one to save Harriet and Victoria is Zelda. Well, I mean, that would be great from a story standpoint, and I totally hear you. Her mother has all of the sort of head knowledge about it, right? But when they were first going to build this bridge, they said, we have to talk to Alice because she has all these notes on mirror bridges, and what Poppy stole from her was her Niffin notes. On, on, you know, how to construct the perfect mm-hmm. one. They were saying she hmm. knows everything about the metamath. So c- could she build another one? I mean, I don't know. So let's marry our two thoughts together. Maybe Zelda goes to Alice because Alice is there in the library. Who's working at the library with her. To save her. And maybe that's the deal now. And that I wonder the other thing. That negates my other thing. Yep. Yes. Holy shit. I hope that's it. <laughs> oh, I hope that's it. Okay, I'm sorry. We got. I hope the Clatchers are excited too. That's we got to wrap wrap this up. Let's go on to 
the final closeout with Penny because we're talking about it anyway. We go back to Cassandra, old Alice, whatever's going on here. She tries to tell Penny again that she's not Alice. Penny is angry and freaks out. This is the part where he needs that information and she gives him the page with the Quentin Poppy sex scene. Very awesome scene when Penny freaks out and throws the papers. I love the angles that they chose to record those scenes. And he finally realizes that Poppy had the key. So he returns to Benedict, who admits he lied because he wanted Penny to stay. Look, don't ask me how I know this, but you are the only person who cried when I died. We are friends, and I appreciate you. So listen, once you show me where the key is buried, Sylvia is going to take you to the library map room. You are going to be very popular. They are friends. He appreciates it, but he needs that damn key. (laughs) I think he really did kind of care for him. He was trying to show him that, but, you know, there's bigger things going on kind of of, of thing. Yeah. And Penny just doesn't always have the tact necessary. So Sylvia comes and finds Penny just as he's putting the key into the book. And like we said, she sends it up the chute. She allows that to happen. She even kind of goes through with it, but doesn't allow Penny to travel into it. This is dispersed with a clip of Quentin finding Katie. The two of them are on the run where they hear the dragon spit out the key. They go and they find it. While downstairs, two library men come to cart off Penny because Sylvia turned him in. Oh, so many things. So many things happening. Okay, one, keep in mind that Q is holding that key with his shirt. So he's not touching it with his skin. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think he won't be enamored by the key's power this time. The library men carting off Penny. What does that mean for Penny? That's something I have no theories for at this point. Why is Sylvia so gung-ho on the library that she has been against him this whole time and we didn't know it, ready to turn him in? Well, I believe that she's been dead for quite a while down there now. She's part of the story she's part of the library at this point is she brainwashed does she believe in it now whatever their message is yeah Mm. and what is their message like i come back to that feeling it's very religious almost a cult following will penny come to believe in that if he's there long enough Um, maybe she's read something that we don't know yet something that could happen well we know she's been spending a lot of time with cassandra so she's probably read a lot of things very interesting storyline a very great question and again leaving us So excited for what's to come. Oh my goodness. So that wraps up our plot overview. And holy shit, we have so many questions and we have so many theories. This is so exciting, Christina. (laughs) It definitely is. I love the progression of where this is going. This was episode eight. We still have five more episodes to go and three more keys to find. A lot can happen in that time. It is crazy to think we've been doing this season for eight weeks now. Wow. Time flies Doesn't feel like it, right? With that being said, let's get into our rating. On a scale of 1 to 10 keys, what do you give episode 8? It's right up there with the best of the best for the best season. I'm giving it 9.3 keys, which is tied for Be the Penny. (laughs) You're not going to believe it. I had the same thoughts. Be the Penny in a Life in the Day still rank as the top two, but just behind that was episode 1, The Tale of the Seven Keys, which I gave a 9.3. So I am also giving this episode a 9.3. I think it's the first episode of this season where you and I have given the same rating. I think it's the first episode of any season of any episode that we've given the same grade. It's amazing, right? 
universal and way higher than IMDb. So IMDb's be crazy. They don't listen to our podcast. They don't break it down enough. Oh, we're normally a lot closer in ratings to them, though. If you go through this whole chart, we were very off with them for episode one and for this one. But other than that, pretty close. Yeah, and that's why in the top of this episode, I tried to assume why they were thinking this way with their grading. And that was the one gripe. Maybe the title of the story didn't really fit with the actual storyline, but ignoring that, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear why. All right, next, going on to our MVM, Most Valuable Magician for the Episode. And every week we ask our Clatchers on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, time to vote for this week's hashtag the magicians. And again, we gave the Clatchers four choices. Harriet, Penny, Julia and Fenn, the librarian. Coming in fourth were Julia and Fenn with 13%. I feel like this is happening often with Julia. What she has accomplished in that episode is very important. It weighs heavy in the storyline, but it's very short scene-wise. Yeah, and in small increments. So by the end of the episode, it doesn't leave you with that feeling of, yeah, Julia did a lot. Um, I think the big thing for her here was that she is figuring out it can be okay to accept her magic. And in fact... If it's an instance where she can help somebody and use it for the good, she's almost obligated to do that. And she recognizes every time she does that, her magic grows. And maybe this is a way she can feel better about it. And I think it took having the interactions with Fen to bring her to that place. And on top of that, really seeing the bad that is out there, stuff that's happened to the fairies. And I wonder if she's thinking to herself, I went through so much bad I wish that somebody was there to help me. Now I have potentially the power to help others. How can I not use that? How can I let that just sit by? Yeah, it's really nice to see her finally embrace the power that she has been bestowed upon. And what is going to happen to Irene now? Is she going to go confront her, have a showdown, Mm. free the fairies? Where are we going? I wonder. But I would love for Fen to continue to be a part of that because she has had such intense dealings with the fairies, it would be only right if she could help liberate them. Coming in at third place, the librarian, Zelda, with 14%. Just sneaking out that third place by 1%. And it makes sense that people voted for the librarian because, oh my goodness, we know that now she's Harriet's mom. We're wondering if she is a god. And we're really starting to figure out how much power this woman has. A lot. Coming in second is Penny with 20%. As we said, he opens and closes the episode. He runs the through line through the entire thing. He is essential in helping get that key to our crew. And we got to see Arjun open his feathers and really be Arjun in this. Showing his acting chops, and I loved it. Minor drawback. I was very upset for his interactions with Benedict. Well, I mean, but it makes sense. You know, what what are you going to do? He hardly knows the guy. Come on. (laughs) But he's his best friend, according to Benedict. (laughs) (laughs) and first place harriet coming in with 53 percent no surprise there god we got to learn so much about harriet we knew she was an interesting character she's an academy award winning actress and she steals the scene anytime she's there and because of all of that harriet is also my mvm same here. And we finally agree on Nemvia. Oh my goodness. We agreed on everything. Maybe we just needed more Marley Matlin to bring us together. <laughs> but still, I'm, I'm very surprised. We've had Harriet coming in at 53, 
Margot at 69. Those have been some high poll votes, but remaining at the number one highest, Elliot and Q pairing. We had one comment this week from our poll from Melly saying, spoiler alert, I voted for Harriet because I loved to discover her background story and how she's always been so fierce. And wow, to define her mom that way, to help her friends and every magician. Hashtag book neutrality. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. And let's move on to one of our Clatcher comments. It's a very interesting theory from at Moondoggy. Cassandra is endgame Alice. She's not really seeing the future. She's Alice from the future, stuck in the past, writing about what happens in a mad attempt to find where she went wrong. Everything else is a cover-up story. So a time loop type of scenario? Perhaps, You know, like what Jane Chatwin created all these different versions and she's just in on this other version. It's not out of the ordinary. Clatchers, thank you so much for listening. And before we go into the next episode, just to remind you that we have our Patreon pages where you have bonus content, more material from Christina and myself, movie reviews, be part of the crew. And also an additional way you could help us out is by going to our website, Coffee Clats Crew, and clicking on our Amazon link to do your normal everyday shopping. Doesn't cost you any more. You click on that link, it sends you to the regular Amazon page. You buy all the technology things, all the magical fairy dust you need, and it makes Amazon just pay us a little bit saying that the Coffee Clats Crew sent you. Or at the very least, if you like what you hear and you haven't done so, please give us a rate and review on iTunes, and that will also help get that magic number up to 100 where you could be entered into another raffle for free CKC giveaway. Plus, that just helps for everybody else that's on there looking for a podcast to recognize that we're out there, get some more hype around The Magician's Show and CKC. That's going to do it for Episode 8, but we want to briefly discuss what's coming up for Episode 9. Of course, there will be some spoilers in that section. If you are afraid of that, we will catch you next time when we review Episode 9, All That Josh. And of course, back to that IndieWire, we got to give them huge props for this article. We're quoting you guys a lot because you had so much great information. Part of that was details for the upcoming musical episode. Now, it's been kind of kept under wraps. We knew it was happening. I didn't know until Jade told us it was going to be the whole episode, which is awesome. We knew that one of the songs was going to be under pressure, of course. That's been out for a little while. McNamara revealed a few other details, one of which I didn't know, that zombies will be involved. I wonder how that fits into the storyline. This is so cool. I mean, he said it was a little strange to film because they were cutting between five different locations. So how do you make that all kind of piece together? And one of those were three actors in the cottage. And again, Jade kind of told us about that. And we can see on the video, which is Quentin Julia and Katie, and they are the ones surrounded by killer zombies, and they're singing. And I love they kind of cut back and forth between that and Elliot. They're still seemingly on trial in the throne room, and he's singing, and it's like they're expressing the anxiety of their different situations through this song. And when she said there's going to be a point to that, that seems to be what it is, and it's very exciting. Oh, this is going to be a full musical episode, and I'm very excited to see Jade show her chops. And we're going to see Josh sing, and uh, hopefully we get an answer where the hell he's been. The episode is titled All That Josh, for goodness sakes. Which is a play on all that jazz. And the synopsis tells us that Quentin, Katie, and Alice try to convince an old friend to return home. Is he the old friend or are we talking about someone else? 
Good things to come. Absolutely. Clatchers, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Tell your friends about us. Let's get this family bigger. Christina and I work very hard to bring you some more entertainment, to relive the episodes and even dive further into it. We have a great time. I hope you guys have a great time. Remember to leave a rating and review. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.